Greetings and welcome to Tales from the Otherwood, a podcast exploring the folk tales and folklore of the East Midlands and beyond. I'm Dylan Knight, and I'll be your guide as we take one of the many paths in this magical, ever-changing woodland. We find ourselves back home in the East Midlands. More specifically, in the city of Leicester, which has a rich and varied history going back to pre-Roman times. This particular tale features an inn that no longer exists. One that has inspired other pubs, and even in this day and age, a micropub in Leicester to take the name. Back in medieval times, and in later ones, inns and taverns were considered to be the luxury hotels of their day, This particular inn was the final resting place of a king, the last king of the medieval age, no less, Richard III. Tales from the Otherwood presents The Prophecy of the Blue Boar. On the hot summer's day of August the 20th, 1485, the innkeeper of the White Boar Inn was excited, very excited. He'd just been approached by a messenger of the Yorkist king, Richard III himself, complete with the king's seal and all. It appeared that the messenger had rode ahead from the king's army, marching from Nottingham, and word had reached his majesty's ear that the White Boar was the best inn in town. You have to understand that a long time ago, inns and taverns were the most popular resting points of their day, where many a weary traveller, with coin to foot the bill, might I add, could not only rest and feed their horse, but they could get good food and good ale as well as a bed for the night. Mind you, the rooms were often shared, and as inns and taverns were places or all sorts of folks might mingle, it meant there was plenty of news and gossip to catch up with too. Of course, If you had a bit more money, you could pay for lodgings in the same room for yourself and your friends. If you were really rich, you could pay to have the whole room to yourself. And that's exactly what the messenger had told the innkeeper the king was ordering, that he desired to spend a night in his own bed in the particularly renowned establishment of the White Boar, where the king shall have one room to himself and the rest of the rooms shall provide lodgings for the rest of his men. Well, as many as the white boar could hold, anyway. The messenger also provided a letter from the king, explaining that the innkeeper shall be handsomely paid in advance for the lodgings, the king's own room, the use of the stables, and for the food and drink to be provided. The innkeeper listened intently and read the letter, Good thing, too, that he could read. He agreed to the terms and would get his staff to clear out the rooms so that the inn would house only the king and his men. After all, Leicester Castle at this time was in no condition to be occupied, and this was truly an honour. But, and it was a niggling but, the innkeeper had only one question. How do you mean... The king desired to spend a night in his own bed. He went on further to tell that each of the rooms had their own beds already provided, 
the messenger explained that the king favoured his own bed above all others. The king was the sort of man who couldn't sleep in another bed, and so had his own constructed, so it could be disassembled and put back together again wherever he would rest. The innkeeper thought about this, and although it didn't make sense to him, he being a man who could fall asleep just about anywhere, he agreed and would have the bed in the best room removed. Besides, said the messenger, the king's own coat of arms includes a white boar, much like the one hanging outside your inn. His majesty believes, staying in the inn that shares the same name as his own heraldic device, will bring good luck. And so it was. The innkeeper, the stable boys, the serving girls, the cook and the cleaner were set to work. Sorry, we're closed, they said, as they ushered away locals who would normally come for their afternoon beverages. Very sorry, but if you go down to the Griffin's Head, they do an excellent chicken and leek pie. Here's all your money back. Good day. They said to their patrons, who were slightly confused at being chucked out and yet being refunded the full amount back. They got to work shifting the bed out of the best room, the one reserved for only the richest clients. They got more ale and wine as well as more ingredients to make more food than usual. The cleaner worked so hard and so quick that by the time that she was done, she very nearly downed her drink of ale with one gulp. That evening, the white boar was filled with the Yorkist army, all having a merry jape and enjoying a good drink. The innkeeper was very impressed with the advanced payment, he'd counted it twice. And the king's bed was carried in different parts by the soldiers and put together with ease. It was a grand four-poster bed, and once it was fully put together, it stood very impressive indeed. As his men drank and ate and sang songs downstairs, King Richard gazed at the table before him by candlelight. It wasn't particularly late, but by this late in August, the shadows and nightfall were drawing quickly. King Richard's attention was drawn towards the map before him. He was to meet the exile, Henry Tudor, in battle at Bosworth Field, some twelve miles away. Richard was apprehensive. This young contender to the crown was an illegitimate braggart, and yet, reports had come back to Richard himself of Tudor's own Lancastrian forces having high numbers. Very high numbers. Richard looked upon the map before him, and a smile dared to creep upon his face. He would take a superior position on top of a hill, and he would have his own force bolstered by his allies. It was at this moment, where he was already planning victory, that Richard heard a commotion outside of his door. The guards were telling someone to go away, a woman by the sound of it. Yet the woman's voice insisted, I have something very important to tell the king. Richard ordered the guards to let the woman in. As she was presented before him, the king looked upon the woman. She wasn't a young girl by any stretch of the imagination, but she was certainly pretty, in a common sort of way, and the woman carried herself well, and the king could see that she had a great sense of knowing in her green eyes. 
The king nodded to the guards, and they closed the door, leaving the two people in the room quite alone. Moments passed, and King Richard looked at her expectantly, then said, Please, do tell what information you have come to say. The woman looked at the king with a mixture of nervousness and pride, and then she spoke. The king's return shall change to blue. The stone that tomorrow his foot shall spurn shall strike his head on his return. The king was mortified. This didn't sound like good news at all. He felt a great dread spiral out from his gut and make him feel dizzy putting his hands to his head to try and make this stop. The king eventually looked up and found that the woman was no longer there. The guards had told the king that she had opened the door quickly and left with great haste. When they asked the innkeeper who she was, he explained that she was a local wise woman. The next morning, a great crowd had come to see the Yorkist army and King Richard wearing his golden crown and shining armour as he rode his great white horse. They cheered as the king and his retinue passed St Nicholas Church and watched as the army had to narrow itself to four men abreast to cross Bow Bridge over the River Soar. King Richard slowed his horse enough to cross the narrow humped bridge and heard a clink of metal against stone. Looking down, he saw his spur had caught against one of the stone pillars of the bridge. Absolute nonsense, Richard muttered to himself, and saw to it to pick up his horse's speed once they were on the other side. The Battle of Bosworth Field took place on the 22nd of August, and the Lancastrian forces of Henry Tudor had won. Richard's allies never arrived and the battle was a horrid and a bloody mess. The innkeeper of the White Boar Inn had heard the voices of excitement, panic and worry. King Richard was dead, and Henry Tudor's army was heading to Leicester. And one of the stable boys asked the innkeeper, What did this mean? What was going to happen? Tudor. Tudor. Was all the innkeeper could mutter to himself and then a thought hit him. Boy, get me some blue paint, now! The stable boy ran as fast as he could. Henry Tudor's army arrived at Leicester, and some of the crowd who had seen off Richard III's own army could see the odd Yorkist souvenir now in the hands of these Lancaster soldiers. They also saw the corpse of Richard III on the back of a horse, passing ever so slowly and ever so closely by one of the pillars on Bowbridge. The very same pillar that Richard III's spur had caught. And they all gasped when they saw and heard the loud wet crack as Richard III's head hit the pillar as it went by. King Henry VII, the first king of the Tudors, assembled his men and was asked by one of them what they should do with the body of Richard III. A local woman, with dark hair and green eyes, shouted that they should go to the White Boar Inn. 
and the locals seemed quite happy with this, and told King Henry it was indeed a fine place to rest the dead king's body. And so, King Henry directed a few of his men to find this place, and instead found a good inn with a painted blue boar outside. The innkeeper was very glad he had remembered the coat of arms of Henry Tudor's general, John de Vere, being a blue boar. Luckily, the stable boy had found a blue paint from a nearby cartwright who had only just painted a blue carriage. And if these fine men weren't here to sack Leicester, then all the better. And as for Richard III's bed still being in the inn, well... He just wouldn't mention it. Strangely enough, the bed of Richard III has another story all of its own. But that's another story for another time. Right. Storytelling is thirsty work. Time for a cup of tea, I think. Put on the kettle or crack open your flask. It's time for a drink and a chat. Prophecies, visions, acts of divination are the ballywick of people who were deemed the cunning folk. People who claim to be able to see the future and interpret it have been recorded since humankind could talk. Cunning folk were employed from at least the Middle Ages all the way up to the 20th century. Cunning folk usually encompassed so-called wizards and witches, the wise men or wise women, who not only knew of herbal folk remedies for healing people, but could use magic spells to lift curses, find lost objects, and even provide a glimpse of the future. Strangely enough, the cunning folk were said to use their spells and employ various methods of seeing the future to help people and the community. In the instances where malevolent witches were said to do the same for more harmful reasons, it could even be argued that perhaps the local wise woman was employed to counter the malicious local witch. Whereas the term cunning folk was first given to describe a good magical practitioner, a teacher or healer, it is now seen as a way of describing a charlatan, a fraud, or a trickster. Bizarrely enough, the term warlock has seen the opposite. Warlock is now thought to simply mean a male witch. Although, it is more accurate to describe a liar or a deceiver, coming from the Anglo-Saxon wordloga, meaning word liar, or one who is false to their word. Nowadays, anyone who says they have access to magical abilities, fortune tellers, mediums, faith healers, herbalists, dowsers, dream interpreters, people who perform helpful spells, tarot readers, etc., would have been at one time described as cunning folk. By the 18th and 19th centuries, the cunning folk had a prime method of employment, such as a smith, a tailor or a butcher but they would offer their more esoteric services outside of their line of everyday work. At least, this was true for men. 
for women. It appears that unless being a wise woman was their employment, it was rare for them to have another trade, although there are some who were recorded as being herbalists or midwives. I had first come across the tale of Richard III and the wise woman in Bob Trubshaw's book, Leicestershire Legends, and came across it again in Folk Tales of the East Midlands by Eric Swift. Although in Swift's version, it not only gives the woman a name, Joan, he describes her as a wise woman, whereas Trubshaw's version reveals the wise woman as being Black Annis, as his book uses her as the narrator. Black Annis being either a type of child-eating creature or a witch. Both versions tell of a woman telling Richard III of the fate that will befall him, and both use the same rhyme, which I will share again. The king's return shall turn to blue. The stone that tomorrow his foot shall spurn shall strike his head on his return. Which, as we know from the story, not only tells of Richard III's various touchings of a rock, but also of the changing colour of the symbol of the inn itself. And even though it doesn't explicitly state the king will die, in the story that's how Richard III interprets it, and ignores the prophecy at his own peril. In another version of the tale, from the Leicestershire Guild of Storytelling, the foretelling of Richard III's end is given, again by a wise woman, but not directly to the king. And it goes like this. Mark where his armed heel strikes against the bridge, his head shall crack. But he'll not feel it, he'll ride alone, as cold as stone. Crookback. Crookback, of course, being an unfortunate nickname given to Richard III, who was vilified in Shakespeare's play during the reign of Henry VIII, the descendant of Henry Tudor. According to the Tudors, Richard III had a hunched back and a shriveled arm, whereas Richard III did have scoliosis, a type of curvature of the spine. This neither gave him a hunched back appearance or rendered him lame. There is even reason to believe that even if his back was curved, this could still be covered up with the fashions of his time. Lester does have one curious bit of folklore in regards to its relationship to royalty, and that is a legend which supposedly goes it is unlucky for the ruling monarch to visit Leicester. Indeed, for Richard III this was certainly true. Quite where this legend came from is a mystery. One source from the 19th century concludes that it may have come from the writings of Geoffrey of Monmouth in writing about King Lear, the founding of Leicester himself. I won't go into detail about that particular story, as we'll cover it in the future. And as for the bed in the inn, well, it's like I said, that is another story for another time. Tales from the Otherwood was written and produced by me, Dylan Knight. If you could please leave a review of this podcast wherever you listen to it, I'd appreciate that a lot. Thank you very much for listening, and remember, stay safe and watch out for the words of the wise woman.